This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick... From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The Australian night was cool and quiet on October 20th, 1989. Edward Bulldock had been out carousing with his friends. He'd won a game of darts and had far too many free drinks. As he stumbled home, a car full of beautiful women pulled up alongside him. They offered him a ride or anything else he'd like. When it rains, it pours, he thought. It seemed like Lady Luck was his shadow tonight. He jumped in the car and let the women take him wherever they wanted. They were dressed in black and seemed otherworldly. There was a familiar scent in the car, something he couldn't quite place. It smelled like iron. He didn't let it bother him. He drifted in and out of consciousness, too drunk to stay awake. The girls didn't seem to mind. They drove him towards a park he'd been to a thousand times. He followed them down an embankment where he'd played with his kids. Of course, he would never visit the park with his children again. In fact, the faces of these women were the last things he'd ever see. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. This is our one and only episode on Tracy Wigginton, Australia's infamous lesbian vampire killer. On October 20th, 1989, Tracy shocked the whole of Australia when she murdered a man in cold blood and proceeded to drink it. 
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Tracy Wigginton's dark descent began long before she entered this world. The trouble started with her grandparents, Avril and George Wigginton. The Wiggintons were an affluent family in Rockhampton, a small coastal city in northeastern Australia. They were known for small eccentricities. For instance, Avril had a pet chihuahua that she carried around everywhere and treated like her child. Her three adoptive daughters, meanwhile, received none of the same affection. Not much is known about Rhonda, Dorel, or Michelle Wigginton, other than to say they were adopted as children by Avril and George, who proved to be abusive parents. Avril beat her daughters, and town gossip says she poisoned them against men. She told her daughters that men only wanted sex and would do horrible things to them if given the chance. But despite her mother's best efforts, Rhonda Wigginton ran headfirst into a series of dead-end relationships with men she met around town. In 1965, Rhonda met Bill Rossborough. It's unclear how old either of them were at the time, but Rhonda was presumably young, a teenager or in her early 20s. Avril forbid her from seeing Bill, but rather than obey her mother, she eloped with him. By the end of 1965, Rhonda gave birth to their only daughter, Tracy. But Bill quickly realized that he had rushed into a commitment he wasn't ready for. He left Rhonda, less than a year into their marriage. With no money or other options, Rhonda was forced to move back in with her parents. If Rhonda thought her mother was controlling before, she had yet to experience the full force of Avril's cruelty. She openly criticized her daughter's shortcomings, especially her failed marriage. Between the stress of a newborn baby and being constantly picked apart by her parents, Rhonda was miserable. She searched for outlets to relieve stress, and when those fell short, she looked for a way out. In 1969, when Tracy was only four, her mom skipped town, never to return. Avril and George didn't think twice about raising little Tracy and officially adopted her when she was seven in 1972. And for a while, everything seemed fine. Avril and George doted on Tracy. They showed her affection they had never shown their other adopted children. But she wasn't the only new addition to the Wigginton household around that time. The exact date is unclear, but it seems they also adopted another daughter, who was also named Michelle around the same time. This Michelle was a bit older than Tracy and immediately became Avril's least favorite daughter. Tracy recalled Avril beating Michelle, whipping her, and once locking her in the dog's kennel overnight. In 1973, when Tracy was eight, Michelle ran away from home. After that, Tracy says her grandfather, George, turned his attention on her and began sexually abusing her. She kept quiet about the abuse, only ever telling one classmate about it when she was 10, two years after it had started. 
Knowing this, it's poignant to remember that Avril had repeatedly told the women of the Wigginton household that men were evil and only wanted sex. It seems likely, in hindsight, that she held that opinion because she shared a bed with a sexual abuser. And yet, despite the tumultuous relationship between Tracy and her caregivers, from the outside, it seemed as though they provided her with every advantage in life. They sent her to a fancy private school where she learned art and music, but Tracy became a bully to the other children. She repeated the cycle of abuse that she experienced at home. She was expelled from her junior high for, quote, molesting other girls. She would have been about 13 at the time. Of course, in the 1970s, same-sex relationships were highly stigmatized. Tracy could have genuinely been a predator, but she may have also been a scapegoat for parents who refused to believe their daughters were having consensual relations with another girl. The exact nature of her bullying is unclear, but what is clear is that by the time Tracy entered high school, she was a mean, intimidating woman who spoke openly about hating men and had no intention of being discreet about her lifestyle. Before we go any further, we should address some problematic stereotypes apparent in Tracy's story. Two pervasive stereotypes about lesbian women is that they hate men and were sexually abused by men in childhood. While both of these things were true about Tracy Wigginton, she was absolutely the exception, not the rule. Despite the prevalent opinion that gay women, and feminists for that matter, hate men, no credible studies show this to be true. As for the belief that gay women were sexually abused by men in childhood, this is tricky. According to the National Center for Biotechnology Information National Institute of Health, studies do show that gay women reported higher rates of childhood sexual abuse than heterosexual women. However, there are many caveats to consider. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. As a quick note, she is not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. Research suggests that gay women may experience higher rates of abuse for displaying non-heteronormative behaviors in childhood. They're also more likely to engage in high-risk lifestyles after facing familial and social rejection for their sexual orientation. Furthermore, statistically, the great majority of gay women have been to therapy or counseling in one form or another and might be more comfortable reporting abuse than their heterosexual counterparts. It's not definitively clear whether childhood sexual abuse affects sexual orientation. All this to say, relating Tracy's story is difficult because it's hard to suss out what is fact and what is mired in stereotypes and rumors especially as Tracy entered high school. By then, she was around 5'10 and 250 pounds. She had short hair and dressed somewhat masculine. Forensic psychologist Gary Harding said of her physical appearance, quote, the physical transformation was simply astonishing. It is no exaggeration to say that Tracy went from looking like a super sweet and cute kid, long hair, earrings, and long dresses, you compare and contrast her childhood photos to the woman she became, and it brings a tear to your eye. This grown man admitted to crying over the fact that Tracy Wigginton no longer wore dresses. Imagine what the rest of her hometown thought of her. There were far more devastating reasons to cry over Tracy's teenage years. 
When she was in her teens, Avril and George both passed away within a year of one another. They left Tracy a sizable inheritance from the Wigginton estate, which was given to her in $75,000 installments. Tracy felt heartbroken and alone. Despite the abuse, the Wiggintons were the only parents she had ever known, and she loved them. After their death, she took to carrying a security blanket around with her everywhere. It was an old pillowcase she called her Bilo. She rubbed it around her face and ran it through her hands almost constantly. On the rare occasion she lost track of her Bilo, she dissolved into hysterics and tore the house apart until she found it again. She wore it under her clothes when in public and slept with it under her pillowcase. Forensic psychologist Gary Harding also noted that this behavior is indicative of an abandonment issue. The bylaw was something she could count on to be an unchanging constant in her otherwise tumultuous life. However, later psychoanalysis showed that something much deeper was manifesting within Tracy, that the part of her that needed her bylaw was beginning to separate from her adult self. Tracy began acting out in disturbing ways. Shortly after the death of her grandparents, she snuck into her Aunt Durrell's house and painted the walls with swastikas and swear words. She also grew deeply obsessed with the occult. She moved in with an unnamed roommate, who was the first to notice Tracy's deepening fascination with witchcraft. Tracy had always been a somewhat talented artist, and over time, her paintings began reflecting her newfound dedication to the black arts. Her new art featured pentagrams surrounded by demons and mystical beasts, always painted with a decidedly angry tone. Slowly, the color left her wardrobe, replaced by black clothing and calf-high boots. At some point, Tracy carved a pentagram into the back of her hand with a kitchen knife. She also gave herself a military buzz cut and covered her body in occult-related tattoos. It was around this time that, in the Rockhampton bar scene, Tracy started going by the name Bobby. There are a few theories on why this might have been. In hindsight, Tracy might have been transgender, without the language to properly express herself. She might have taken on the name Bobby and began dressing more masculine while still referring to herself as a woman. Forensic psychologist Harding also believes that Bobby might have been a persona she adopted after the death of her grandparents. Tracy was a scared, abandoned little girl, but Bobby was strong and able to take care of herself. Bobby could have been another personality, developed to separate Tracy from the person her grandparents had known. In 1982, when Tracy was 17, she met her first girlfriend, a woman named Sunshine. Tracy was head over heels for her, but Sunshine wasn't quite as enamored. She often cheated on Tracy. Despite this, Tracy pressured Sunshine into becoming more serious, and the two were married at some point in 1982 or 1983, during an unofficial ceremony presided over by a member of the Hare Krishna, a sect of Hinduism. Tracy spent the next four years in relative bliss with Sunshine, living off the dregs of her inheritance and carousing the local bars. But just as life seemed to be improving for Tracy, she would once again find herself abandoned by everything she loved. Next, Tracy slowly begins to snap.
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. At the start of 1986, 21-year-old Tracy Wigginton was living with her wife, Sunshine, whom she wed in a Hare Krishna ceremony four years previous. After a life of near-constant abandonment and abuse, it seemed like she finally had something stable to ground her. But all good things, as they say, must come to an end. After four years of marital semi-bliss, Sunshine left Tracy for a man she'd been seeing in secret for some time. Tracy also learned that Sunshine had been unfaithful to her throughout the entirety of their marriage. The breakup sent Tracy reeling. She curled up into a ball on the couch, where she stayed for days on end. After the dissolution of her marriage, Tracy was never quite the same. Something deep within her broke, and she became noticeably darker and more deviant to those who knew her. According to social worker Dr. Claudia Black, who serves on the boards of both the National Association of Children of Alcoholics and the Moyer Foundation, children who live with chronic loss, like Tracy, usually internalize an incredible fear of abandonment, as well as toxic shame. Toxic shame is the term used to define an internalized sense that the abandoned child feels that they are not of value and not worth sticking around for. As adults, this toxic shame becomes the driving force behind their decisions. Sunshine's abandonment of Tracy was likely a trigger for these feelings of inadequacy, lack of self-worth, and insignificance. Tracy had spent a lifetime feeling strange, unlovable, and abandoned. In the wake of her breakup with Sunshine, instead of seeking the help of a mental health professional, she embraced erratic, odd behaviors that either attracted attention or shunned the world that seemed so hellbent on shunning her. Around the same time her marriage ended, Tracy inherited another $75,000 from her parents' estate. She used the money to move to a resort town called Cairns, along the coast, a fresh start far away from the home she'd shared with Sunshine. 
In her grief, she burned through the entire inheritance in less than a year. For the first time in her life, she found herself desperate for cash and took up a job as a bouncer at a local gay bar. According to Trish Samuelson, author of The True Story of Tracy Wigginton, she also delved deeper into the black arts, becoming obsessed with the idea of witchcraft and devil worship. Perhaps in an attempt to find unconditional love and someone who would not leave her, Tracy also began trying to get pregnant. She asked the owner of the bar where she worked to impregnate her. He agreed. But the circumstances of their arrangement were, to say the least, weird. They agreed to have intercourse as a means of impregnating Tracy, rather than opting for a fertility clinic. But instead of having these meetings in private, they allegedly had sex in front of six close friends on numerous occasions. It's possible that to her, having sex in front of her six friends was some kind of ceremony. Tracy was, after all, a budding witch whose practices proved far different from most modern incarnations of witchcraft. It's unclear who these friends were or the nature of their onlooking, but Tracy did eventually become pregnant when she was about 22. Sadly, she miscarried the pregnancy shortly thereafter and didn't try to get pregnant again. As the next few years rolled by, Tracy indulged her obsession with a few harmless hobbies associated with the occult, tarot reading, seances, and some rather graphic artwork. She had a decidedly devil-may-care attitude, which drew other lost souls to her. Eventually, she amassed a little group of women she treated as her coven, Lisa Pachinski, Kim Jarvis, and Tracy Waugh, all of whom were in their early 20s when they met Tracy, likely in 1987 or 1988. Lisa and Tracy started dating, and Tracy soon proved to be a bully in their relationship, much as she'd been in school. Tracy told Lisa she could completely disappear except for her eyes, and that she had other occult powers that would scare Lisa into submission. The fear and uncertainty helped Tracy maintain control over her little coven as well. They dressed all in black and began meeting in graveyards around Cairns. Kim Jarvis later reported that Tracy began capturing bats and keeping them in her home. Then, one night, Tracy revealed her deepest secret to the coven, that she was a vampire and had been subsisting on animal blood to keep going. But she was growing weak and needed human blood to restore her energy. At the time, her coven was in awe of her. Her tattoo-covered body and dark blue hair, combined with her charisma and knowledge of the dark arts, made her a captivating leader. Her coven transformed into a little cult, with Tracy at the head. After telling her coven she was a vampire, Tracy began embracing the most stereotypical of vampire behaviors. She took all the mirrors out of her home and avoided mirrors in public. She became nocturnal, telling her coven that while sunlight wouldn't kill her, it weakened her and gave her headaches. She stopped eating solid food, at least in front of Kim, Lisa, and Tracy Waugh. Instead, she frequented the local butcher and bought canisters of pig's blood to drink. On some occasions, the other girls in the coven would slit their arms and let Tracy drink their blood. 
Kim later described Tracy as a shark in a feeding frenzy when she drank her coven's blood. She would slurp away at her friend's veins until they grew lightheaded and forced her to stop. This vampiric behavior is admittedly disturbing, but it is indicative of a mental illness known as clinical vampirism. According to mental health counselor Helen Neves, clinical vampirism describes those who believe that consuming blood gives them special abilities, and it usually excited the person sexually. Because blood becomes fetishized for the person in question, it can be very difficult to treat the disorder. What makes clinical vampirism so dangerous is that consuming human blood will make a person sick, but individuals with the disorder often have a compulsion to drink the blood anyway. Many clinical vampires eventually seek treatment after landing in the hospital. One day in early October 1989, Tracy and her girlfriend Lisa, both 24, went for a drive. And Tracy told her that she had been speaking to Satan directly, and that Satan wanted her to become a destroyer. Tracy told her coven that their blood was no longer sustaining her. She needed to kill. A real victim that would allow her to feed in earnest, without the worry of drinking too much of her friend's blood, she needed to feed uninhibited. The three other women were initially hesitant, but recognized that their leader had gotten the orders from Satan himself. There was little they could do to resist. A week later, on the night of October 20th, 1989, Tracy and her coven piled into her car and cruised the streets of Cannes, looking for a victim. They wanted a man specifically, largely for two reasons. First, Tracy didn't feel remorse for taking a man's life, the way she might regret killing a woman. Second, she felt a man would be far easier to lure into the car. Around 3.30 in the morning, they turned a dark corner and happened upon a drunk, middle-aged man singing and twirling around a stop sign, too drunk to walk straight. Immediately, Tracy knew she had found her victim. She pulled the car over beside him and asked if he wanted a ride. As they had planned, the other three girls began flirting with him, all but promising sex should he get in the car and take a drive with them. 47-year-old Edward Bulldog had a wife and children waiting for him at home, but he also found it hard to resist the idea of group sex with young, attractive women he made the fatal decision of getting into the car. From there, the coven continued to flirt with Edward as Tracy drove the car towards a park along the banks of the Brisbane River. There, Tracy coaxed him down to an old boat shed where he believed they were going to have sex. Tracy kissed Edward and the two began to undress. Once he was naked, Tracy stopped for just a moment and told him she needed to get something from the car. She ran up the embankment, leaving a very drunk Edward sitting against the old boat shed. What happened next is highly speculative, but while Edward made no attempt to leave the scene, he did seem to sense that Tracy had turned back for something other than a condom. Perhaps suspecting she might try to rob him, he took out his wallet and slid it under the corrugated door to the shed. Then it's believed he noticed Tracy's debit card laying on the ground. Since he was drunk, he might have thought it was actually his card, or possibly he knew it was Tracy's and was happy to rob her instead. 
Either way, he tucked the debit card into his shoe just before Tracy came back down the embankment. Forensic psychologist Gary Harding has an interesting theory on how the bank card got dropped in the first place. He believes that Tracy actually suffered from dissociative identity disorder, formerly and more commonly called multiple personality disorder, and had at least two identities. Bobby, the persona she adopted after the death of her grandparents, who was hardened against the world and capable of murder, and Big Tracy, who absorbed the anxiety and depression that manifested after a life of abandonment and fear. Harding believes that midway through the seduction, Big Tracy overpowered Bobby just long enough to drop her own bank card as a way of planting evidence against herself. Then Edward tucked the card into his shoe, unknowingly snagging the sole piece of evidence that would link Tracy to his gruesome end. In a moment, Edward's untimely demise. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. On the night of October 20th, 1989, in Cairns, Australia, 24-year-old Tracy Wigginton lured 47-year-old Edward Bulldog to certain doom along the banks of the Brisbane River. She had left him stone drunk beside an old boat shed, promising to return after she grabbed something from her car, where her three cohorts waited. When Tracy got back to the car, she looked murderous. She grabbed a long knife and asked her coven to join her. Kim Jarvis and Tracy Waugh refused, not ready to kill someone in cold blood. Lisa Pachinski jumped out of the car and happily followed her girlfriend down to the boat shed where Edward was waiting. As they drew closer, Lisa began to have second thoughts. With each step she took, the situation grew more real. She had spent a week visualizing what it would be like to take a human life. She had always pictured herself able to do it, able to kill for the leader of her coven. But when she saw Edward, the gravity of the grisly crime struck her. She froze, then slowly began to shake her head, unable to continue. She backed out. Tracy, however, was undeterred. She stepped around her girlfriend and snuck up behind Edward. She withdrew the knife and stabbed him in the back repeatedly. She hit him with such brute force that he didn't have time to react. And being incredibly intoxicated, he couldn't get his wits about him in time to defend himself. He crumpled to the ground in a heap. Tracy kept stabbing. She stabbed his back and neck 
27 times in total, nearly severing his head. At one point, she grabbed his hair to pull his head up, then stabbed the front of his throat as well. Lisa watched as Tracy hacked away at her victim, looking frenzied. It was terrifying, although she didn't feel scared. Hesitant, but never worried. When she finished, Tracy ordered Lisa to wait at the car. It was time to feed, and she wanted to enjoy the spoils of her kill alone. Lisa headed up the embankment as Tracy looked at her victim. She had stabbed Edward so many times that part of his back had concaved, making a little bowl that was quickly filling with blood. Tracy drank from it eagerly until she felt dizzy and sick from the feeding frenzy. She had never drunk so much blood in her life. When she got back to the car, she was covered in blood, and she told her coven she felt like she had just eaten a three-course meal. At some point in the next hour or so, Tracy realized that she had lost her bank card. When a thorough search of the car didn't produce it, she and her coven returned to the scene of the crime to search. They tried to be quick, looking for the card in total darkness, the crumpled up body of Edward Bulldog just inches away. But after a few minutes, one of the girls thought she heard something and they scattered. A few hours later, just after daybreak, Stephen Karen was rowing his kayak down the Brisbane River, as he did almost every morning. But as he moved past the old boat shed, he saw something odd. At first, he believed it to be a drunk taking a catnap, or possibly a homeless person sleeping on the grass. But then, he saw blood pooling around the body and splattered up the side of the boat shed he knew immediately that something was very, very wrong. He called the police, who discovered the dead body of Edward Bulldog and determined that the murder had taken place within the last few hours. A coroner report found that the first stab wound had been to Edward's backside and had been so vicious that it nearly severed his spinal column. Detective Pat Glancy recalled standing over Edward at the scene. When he went to turn the body over, the head didn't initially come with it. He thought it was going to fall off. Glancy has since said that this was the most gruesome murder he encountered in his career. Initially, due to the strength required to stab into the bone as deeply as the assailant had done, he believed they were looking for a group of men. An initial sweep of the crime scene revealed no clues on who those men might be. It wasn't until a few hours later that the coroner found the debit card in Edward's shoe with Tracy's name on it. Police were quick to arrest Tracy Wigginton in connection with Edward's murder. They've since said that had it not been for Edward sticking the card in his shoe, they never would have caught his assailant. For some reason, police arrested Kim Jarvis at the same time as Wigginton. It's unclear on how they knew she might be involved. The girls had worked out a story, should they ever be arrested, that they had been at the park earlier in the day, but had neither seen nor heard anything. 
Tracy even added that there'd been a strange-looking couple at the park that gave them a chilly, eerie feeling, and they knew they needed to get out of there fast. Then, according to Tracy, they booked it home, not wanting to be around after dark. But Kim had given a different story. She claimed they stumbled upon the body that day. Tracy agreed to that story, saying she had omitted that detail because she was nervous. But then police came back, saying the body hadn't been murdered until four in the morning. Now Tracy really began to grow nervous. She agreed that they were at the park in the early hours of the morning and had seen the body, but she'd been too scared to report it to the police. Meanwhile, Lisa had been at Tracy's at the time of her arrest, and when her girlfriend was taken out in handcuffs, she panicked. She left their home in case police came back, then wandered the streets in an anxious stupor for a few hours, before her nerves got to her. Lisa had watched the murder with her own eyes. She was deeply disturbed, so much so that she walked into the police station and confessed the entire story, sparing no horrific detail. Tracy confessed to the murder soon after, as did the other two women in the coven. But the interviews that followed showed a depth of depravity that disturbed even the most senior members of the police force. For one, Tracy told them that the reason she had stabbed Edward so deeply was that she wanted to get into the bone. She felt there would be a magic power to stabbing into his bones before drinking his blood. Furthermore, police were shocked to discover she had no drugs, alcohol, or stimulants in her system. The number and strength of stab wounds suggested that the person who had committed the murder was likely on drugs. They were horrified to learn that she had been running on pure adrenaline. She told police that she had been fantasizing about chopping up a man for months and had run the scenario in her head so many times that by the time she committed the actual murder, it felt like second nature. Most amazingly, she didn't seem to get sick from the amount of Edward's blood she drank which meant that she had either been drinking that much blood in the months leading up to the murder that she had built up a tolerance, or she lied to her friends about how much she actually drank. It's hard to say how much Tracy believed that she was communing with Satan and whether she really thought she was a vampire. We also don't know if she truly believed she could disappear, leaving only her cat-like eyes in the physical world. Tracy was a deeply disturbed, deeply hurt human being who feared being abandoned by those around her. She might have knowingly made up lies to keep her coven obedient, or she might have dreamt up ways to see herself as special. This is called pseudo-exceptionalism, and according to Dr. Jeremy Sherman, it's something we all do. Essentially, most people believe that they're secretly morally superior to those around them. We are married to ourselves from birth, so we're prone to making accommodations for ourselves. We have a hard time looking at our actions objectively. This is most evident when people are asked to apologize for hurting someone unintentionally. Someone with a hypersense of pseudo-exceptionalism might refuse to apologize because they didn't mean to offend, making it about themselves instead of the other person's feelings. 
The more a person feels unliked or rejected, the more heightened their sense of pseudo-exceptionalism tends to be. For Tracy, who had been abandoned and rejected all her life, it probably became easier to delve into dark arts and vampirism, producing reasons for more people to abandon her, rather than confront the pain she felt from the previous betrayals. In short, we all believe that we are a little special, but Tracy felt she was extremely special as a way to conceal the inner thought that she was unlovable and easy to leave. Tracy's pseudo-exceptionalism ensured she felt no remorse for the murder, having committed it in Satan's name. Police were shocked by her callousness and rightfully suspected there might be something deeper going on in her mind. Before Tracy's trial, she was asked to undergo 26 hours of hypnosis and was diagnosed with four distinct personalities. First, there was Bobby, the mean-spirited, callous, cynical personality capable of committing murder. Then there's Big Tracy, the anxious, depressed side that absorbed her abandonment issues and genuinely tried to be a good person. It's believed Big Tracy left the debit card at the scene of the crime to implicate Bobby in the kill. Little Tracy was childlike and naive, the part of her that needed to carry around a security blanket. And finally, the observer, Tracy's calm, rational mind that could record the goings-on of the other three personalities. It's unclear exactly when each personality showed itself, or whether any of her friends suspected she suffered from this disorder. Her psychologists also believed there was a fifth personality named Avril, who manifested purely as a voice in Tracy's head, as opposed to a persona she would embody. Avril would scream obscenities at Bobby in particular and attempt to control her. Additionally, Gary Harding believes that Tracy had antisocial personality disorder, although that diagnosis is not official. What is clear is that Tracy Wigginton was a broken woman, plagued by mental illness. She pled guilty to murder in 1991 and was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum sentence of 13 years, after which time she would be eligible for parole. Interestingly, her sentencing came and went without media attention since she accepted a plea deal. It wasn't until the trial of her three cohorts, who pled not guilty, that the foursome became a media sensation. The details of their deviant, satanic coven proved captivating television, and soon newscasters were calling the four the lesbian vampire killers. Because news outlets put a large emphasis on the women being gay, feminists and the LGBTQ community fought back, quick to condemn the media as biased and painting an unfair picture of the lesbian community. Tracy's birth mother, Rhonda Hopkins, who had kept in touch with her daughter sporadically over the years, has since come to her defense. She denied the allegations that her daughter believed herself to be a vampire or that she ever drank blood. Despite Tracy's guilty plea, Rhonda refused to accept the truth throughout the entirety of the trial. But Tracy's three friends tried their best to paint Tracy as a controlling, manipulative cult leader, and themselves as her brainwashed sheep. Tracy Waugh's attorney argued that Tracy Wigginton had threatened to kill the other Tracy if she didn't go along with the murder. 
The tactic worked, and she was acquitted of all charges. Lisa and Kim were sentenced alongside Tracy Wigginton. Lisa was also given a life sentence with a minimum of 13 years. Kim was sentenced to 18 years in prison, which was later reduced to 12 upon appeal. Tracy served her sentence largely without incident, except for one occasion where she attacked another inmate and, afterwards, sank into a deep depression. Even so, she won her parole hearing in 2012 and was released from prison after showing true remorse for killing Edward Bulldog. In the seven years since her release, Big Tracy has lived a quiet life and stayed out of trouble. But Bobby still lurks inside her and could always come out to feed again. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Aaron Lan and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. 